It's time for the Russ Belleville Show's Cannabis Q&A with Dr. Mitch Earlywine. Dr. Earlywine is a professor of psychology at the State University of New York at Albany and a leading author and researcher on cannabinoids and health who pins the Ask Dr. Mitch column for High Times Magazine. Get your questions ready in our live chat or call in to 971-533-7111 now. All right. I want to get that ice cream. Let's go to the ice cream. I'm heading to the ice cream. Here, take my arm there. Okay. I'm here with LV Musica, one of the remaining federal medical marijuana patients. How's the conference, LV? Very, very oh, educational, very good. Yeah, very mind, mind feeling. Any, any new but, stuff that's really stuck with you from this conference? No, I was pretty much reviewing so much that's come out late. You're, you're yeah. still dealing with your endocannabinoid system and and all the connections in your brain and how it, all the things that you can do with cannabis. It's, it's just reaffirming all the things I've been learning for 41 years. But this last five years, it's just like more and more stuff coming out. It's more and more exciting. Now, you're still in the state of Oregon for I'm your residence. How are things for you in Oregon? Um, Oregon keeps changing all the time, but I think we got the best loss of all, and I think we're going to be all right. I think so, too. I think so, yeah. And and I know that you uh, sing from time to time. Any yes. new songs? Any new uh, records? No, no new records. No I'm new records? playing with a couple of things with a guitarist friend of mine, but we haven't done anything professional with it. <laughs> well, how do, how do you feel now that the uh, you know the, the federal government's starting to talk about maybe they'll reschedule? And, uh, and, and they seem like they're finally coming around after tweeting you for how many years now? <laughs> they have. I've been on this program for 28 years. will be 28 in October. And they've never asked you once how it's working. Not only, oh, they make my doctor write reports every year, and they have never published any of any of us that I know of. I don't think even my doctor knows what's going on with the rest of the patients. (laughs) No, nobody knows. That's the whole idea. Keep us ignorant, and they can control us. That's right. Ignorance blinds us, and if we can't see where we're going, we don't go, do we? That's right. That's That's right. They think I'm here anyway. (laughs) (laughs) You're doing great, Elvie. We always appreciate seeing you, and and you're such a strong activist and and voice for us. We, We love you. Thank you, thank you. I love you too, and I love the work you do, and all of you are parts of a huge puzzle, and I'm just a little part of it, and I'm so glad of the picture that's coming together. Oh, that's so Listen, great. how do I get upstairs? i got to go get my cane and a coat so okay, I can get out of here. let's find out. We'll be back right yeah, after this, folks. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Radical Russ here at the Patients Out of Time Conference, 10th Annual Clinical Therapeutics Conference here in Baltimore, Maryland, and we're here at the desk for the American Cannabis Nurses Association. Tell folks your name and tell folks about the ACNA. This is Eileen Konechny. I'm president of the American Cannabis Nurses Association. We're a 501c3 non-for-profit professional nursing organization going out and actually trying to reach a subspecialty in cannabis nursing. So um, we are going to be launching our online core curriculum on 420. Perfect timing. Perfect timing. We're really excited. It's going to um, enable nurses to get um, eight continuing education credits and a uh, uh, at the end of it, a competency in cannabis nursing. And it covers the gamut of everything from the history of why cannabis is the way it's being treated, um, dosing and advocacy, everything a nurse needs to know about, you know, being able to advocate on it on behalf in if they're in a state, a non-legal state, or um, being able to help their physicians better better recommend it and use it as a real medicine. That's great. Have yeah. you had to deal with any conflicts with the traditional nursing associations out there? No, the ANA actually supports this. They've oh, supported good. this for, and I, I don't have the date, um, but but they've supported the uh, education of nurses about, about medical marijuana because they know that patients are using it and 
they need to be educated on, on what it does. Nurses always have seemed, seemed to me to be farther ahead, further ahead in this than the doctors have been. Do you think that's true? I think I do. I think that that's true. Uh, um, we're, we're the foot soldiers. We're, in, we're, we're with the patients every day. And, you know, once you learn about the medicinal benefits or, or you know the science behind what cannabis does, you know, you can't help but, but try and get this into the hands of the patients. There's a lot of talk about the DEA possibly addressing rescheduling of cannabis. What are your thoughts on that? That's a double-edged sword. Yeah. It's definitely a double-edged sword. Um, um, I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I, I'm hoping, you know, if you look at the CARES Act yeah. and you look how, you know, they say that they're going to leave the state programs alone, um, that's hopeful. Yes. But... You know, if it really goes strict pharma, then there's there's issue with patient access, and then the and then the fact that it it'll actually work because we all know that when you strip away it down to just a THC or a CBD, it doesn't work as well. So we are we completely advocate for whole plant medicine, yeah. and so so I don't know. Yeah, it I is, don't know. It is It'll be really interesting. <laughs> it's frightening to me because I, I, when I hear the talk about possible rescheduling to schedule two, and I go, I think you mean like meth cocaine and oxycontin right right so but 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 there's a part in there that you know it's gonna it's gonna help with with research and okay so that's good and okay and then as always you know they say it's a step in the right direction okay that's good too but it it i'm afraid what it might do for the patients it 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 really should be descheduled Absolutely. Deschedule it. So if people want more information on the ACNA, how can they find you online? So we're at www.americancannabisnursesassociation.org. It's a really long one, so we're really sorry about that. (laughs) It's the longest website ever. Americancannabisnursesassociation.org. You'll find it, folks. (laughs) Thank Thank you you so much much for your time. Thanks a lot, Rob. And have yourself a great conference. You too. We're here at the 10th Annual Conference for Cannabis Therapeutics, sponsored by Patients Out of Time. We're at the Baltimore Harbor Hotel, and I'm sitting at the desk with Dr. David Behrman, MD, author of Drugs Are Not the Devil's Tools. Capitalize not exactly. the Devil's Tools. How are you doing, Dr. Behrman? I'm doing just fine, and I want to thank you very much for uh, mentioning my book up in Portland there to the, uh, was it the normal chapter that you were working with? Yeah, that's great. It's, it's a fantastic uh, set of books. I've often said to people, like, if you've already bought Jack Herrer's Emperor Wears No Clothes, this is the next set of books that you need to get because it fills in all those other gaps that were left out. And I'm going to use that in my advertising. Okay. You know, there's no, no greater compliment than being compared to Jack's book. Oh, know? yeah. So tell people, because it's two volumes here, so explain why there's two separate volumes and what they're going to find in each. Well, the reason that there's two separate volumes is my publisher told my layout person, you can make the internal margin either three quarters of an inch or one inch he made it three quarters of an inch and the book is too long uh, so we're actually going to be coming out uh, with a single volume late uh, late this summer uh, we've uh, edited it it's going to be newly laid out but right now the first volume goes from uh, the dark ages through 1969 it's the idea with the book is to place uh, cannabis and the way we approach that in the frame of a long history of using drug laws to marginalize, discriminate against people, and also to uh, take advantage of drugs as a way of, uh, of making money. And, and basically, it's turned out to be a control mechanism for the ruling classes uh, in terms of enriching them and also marginalizing people who 
are them. And, you know, yeah. we've all been them sometime in the history of the world. You're one of my favorite thems. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. But, well, no, we're us, aren't we us? Them are them. Them us are them, and we are us. And, and you know, this was uh, corroborated recently in, in that Harper's Magazine piece where uh, Ehrlichman, uh, the public policy oh, advisor yes. to Nixon, yeah. came out right out and said it. Look, we, we did this so we could infiltrate the hippies and the blacks. Exactly. And uh, that uh, actually is uh, mentioned in my book, uh, and an even uh, deeper analysis of that was done by uh, Dr. Sunil Agarwal, mm, yes. who wrote an excellent uh, article on the Nixon tapes and mentioned uh, what Ehrlichman had to say, and also talked about Nixon being angry at uh, the uh, directors of NIMH, uh, or NIH, during the uh, 60s. Uh, one was Stanley Yalis, the other one is Burt Brown, and when asked about what would be the appropriate punishment, they said, oh, something like a traffic ticket. Yeah. And uh, Nixon wanted to fire Brown, but he, he realized that Brown was a friend of Elliot Richardson, and Elliot Richardson was uh, uh, the head of HEW uh, uh, at the time and wasn't going to fire his friend. Right. And that was part of the motivation, as I get it from Dr. Uh, Agarwal's uh, article, for uh, developing the National Institute of Drug Abuse to get this out of the hands of the scientists and put it in the hands of people who had more of a criminal justice orientation. Gotcha. It's all beginning to make sense. This, It's all in these two-volume set, Drugs Are Not the Devil's Tools. People looking for this online, where would they find it? Uh, we uh, have uh, our own website. You can go to the uh, Drugs Are, are Not the Devil's Tools, uh, com. Uh, or you can go to my website, davidbearmanmd.com, and Behrman is spelled just like it sounds, B-E-A-R-M-A-N. The comes in uh, black and white and color. The black and white is $30 uh, per volume, so that's 60 for both of them, and the colored is $45 per volume. And the only difference is the colored is prettier. They have yeah. exactly the same, uh, same content. The same content. But as we're sitting here at the uh, conference here at Patients Out of Time, I was uh, pleased that everything that was covered this morning, where they talked about the terpenes and the cannabinoids and the endocannabinoid system, all of that material is covered in, in my book. This okay. is a, a great foundation book to give you an idea of the history of drug policy, which goes way back to, to uh, the witch hunts. And, I mean, that's very appropriate since uh, cannabis has been uh, a part of the witch hunts since sometime in the 1940s. And... What I'm hoping is is that if not the, the book itself, the information in the book will get out there because we still have way, way too many physicians who have no idea about the long history of cannabis as a medicine and about its remarkable applications today. No doubt about that. And I also know that you're strongly involved with the American Academy of Cannabinoid Medicines. Right. I'm, and what's the latest there? Okay, well, thank you very much for bringing that up. The American Academy of Cannabinoid Medicine... Uh, is an effort to try to recognize those doctors that are practicing good quality medicine and sort of by its very existence to marginalize those uh, physicians who are practicing minimalist medicine when it comes to recommending cannabis. The, you know, the guys who pull up the trailer to the cannabis ex expo and you can see the line move in front of their yeah, uh, trailer. Yeah. Uh, that undermines the seriousness with which we should take cannabinoid medicine. Uh, we continue to get um, uh, new members. Uh, we're a very um, frugally funded organization. So if anybody listening to your program wants to promote 
good quality medicine uh, in the cannabinoid medicine field, uh, go to our website, which is aacmsite.org, aacmsite.org, uh, and uh, let me know uh, if you are, are interested in uh, contributing money because you will really uh, put forth uh, getting this front and center before medical professionals the way it's supposed to be. We uh, have done uh, a couple of uh, continuing education uh, activities, and we have sort of dimly in the future, uh, we've approached the Veterans Administration in Long Beach, and they have some interest, but uh, you know how it is. It's mm-hmm. not easy uh, to get the government to, uh, to change, even when you have people that are interested in and then uh, Greg Carter, who is busier than uh, a one-armed paper hanger, is the co-director of the uh, uh, St. Luke's Institute for Rehabilitation in Spokane. And uh, he has uh, said, hey, let's, let's put on a, a conference up here in Spokane. Uh, but beyond him expressing his interest, we haven't really gotten started on that. So uh, we, I'm going to be presenting a... Uh, survey that we did or an extraction of data from 300 charts, 100 from each of three cannabinoid medicine physicians, which is a beginning. It's to lay a foundation for looking at what we should study more in terms of uh, the clinical application. And basically what we found is what an old uh, 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 clinical medicine professor of mine said. He had a thick Austrian accent and he said, if you diagnose common disease commonly and rare disease rarely, you'll commonly be right and rarely be wrong. <laughs> and well put. So what we found with uh, the use of uh, cannabis as a medicine, it's commonly used for common disease, and more rarely uh, do you find rare diseases. And, you know, you take a look, and in our study we found about 1% or 2% of the patients had migraine headaches and the same had seizures. And that's because not everybody and his brother has epilepsy. Right. But everybody and his brother does have pain, which was the number one reason that we found uh, for people using uh, cannabis. So I hope that people are interested in uh, the American Academy of Cannabinoid Medicine because we're trying really hard uh, to get uh, the medical profession to recognize that this is an important medicine and that it's important to take it seriously and to approach it the same way we would other serious therapeutic uh, modalities. I've been asking everyone at the conference their take on the recent talk about DEA and rescheduling possibly happening. What what do you think about that possibility? Uh, I think they wouldn't be talking about it if they weren't serious. And obviously they have to do something if they're going to approve uh, Sativex, uh, uh, the product for multiple sclerosis, or Epidiolex, the product for um, uh, uh, seizure disorder. So I think they're going to do it. And my only concern now is, is we've been demanding legalization and regulation, uh, regulation, and I just hope that, uh, you know, be careful what you ask for, you yeah. might get it. That, uh, you know, regulation and legalization is like anything else, the devil is in the details. So I, I think the general idea is a good idea, and I, I'm very concerned about the government because... Their track record is abysmal uh, in the area of drug regulation. Almost every action that they have taken subsequent to the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906 has been an abysmal failure. Wow. Strong words from Dr. David Behrman here at the Conference for Clinical Therapeutics. Patients out of time. The book is Drugs Are Not the Devil's Tools. Volume 1, Volume 2, you can get a black and white or color. Check out drugsarenotthedevilstools.com. 
check out American Academy for Cannabinoid Medicine, AACMsite.org. Dr. Behrman, thanks for talking to us. Hey, it's a great pleasure. Thank you, Russ. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Hey everybody, it's Radical Russ here from 420 Radio inviting you to be like me and get your ink done at Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo, Fort Worth's most female-friendly, clean, sterile, awesome tattoo shop. Thomas and his crew are true artists who can design you a custom piece or use a design you bring in. Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo also offers all styles of tattooing as well as piercings and all-around fun. In the DFW area, stop by Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo and tell them Radical Russ sent you. Trust me, it'll feel awesome. Normal stands for responsible adult cannabis use. If cannabis use is causing problems in your life, consider taking a break or seeking medical assistance. Consider ceasing cannabis use if you have a family history of mental illness. Don't drive or operate heavy machinery while impaired by cannabis use. Cannabis use is not without risks, even though the risks may be far less than those posed by legal drugs. Don't want to spend money on a night out, but don't know what to do other than watching TV or playing video games? Consider playing guitar, bass, banjo, or mandolin. The instrument will give you hours of entertainment with friends with minimal expense. Stop by the Fingerboard Extension downtown Corvallis at 120 Northwest 2nd Street today or check out its inventory on the web at fingerboardextension.com. must wage what I have called total war against public enemy number one. I support a change in law. Then federal criminal penalties for possession of up to one ounce of marijuana. That marijuana, pot, grass, whatever you want to call it, is probably the most dangerous drug. Some think there won't be room for them in jail. We'll make them. I experimented with marijuana a time or two, and I didn't like it, and didn't inhale. And one major responsibility is to encourage people to use less drugs. Entirely legitimate topic uh, for debate. Radical rant. Welcome back, everyone. We are at the SSDP 2016 conference, and I've run into two giants of reform. We've got Eric Sterling from the SSDP Board of Directors. Hi, Eric. Hi, Cannabis Radio. It is such a thrill to be here with, with Russ Belleville. And- <laughs> Hi, Cannabis Radio. It's such, it is Eric Sterling, and it is such a thrill to be here with Russ Belleville covering this, con- this exciting conference of students. That's right. And we got Chris Crane here as well. Hi, Chris. Hello. Great to be here and back home with SSDP. What do you think about the turnout here for this SSDP conference? Looks like the biggest ever. It, it is the biggest ever. Yeah, I hear there's about 550 people, 350 students, uh, kids from like 13 countries. It's, it's amazing. It's, it's, it's uh, one of the more inspiring events I've, I think I've ever been to. You may be uh, the first SSDP alumni I ever met uh, so many years ago. Uh, what keeps you busy now? Uh, today I'm, I'm working with uh, Forefront Ventures, my, uh, my company, and we, uh, so we work with uh, dispensary applicants and operators around the country and, um, and a few other venture, ventures in the, um, in, the, in the medical cannabis industry. Fantastic. Now, Eric, you've got a ton of perspective on this, uh, having worked in reform for so long. What do you think about the latest changes? Uh, we're starting to see you know, ungas is happening, and there seems to be a, an awakening to the need to change these laws. Uh, it's been enormously exciting, Russ. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a state medical cannabis commissioner in Maryland and was able to play, a, a, I think, a constructive role in creating the Maryland system. And we have right now a 1,000 applications for licenses that are, we're evaluating. You know, uh, we're going to have medical cannabis in Maryland. <laughs> okay. 
We're doing an interview over here. Could you hold on for just one minute, please? Thank you. The changes. <laughs> Change is happening at a pace that is impossible for someone like me to contemplate. I've been doing this for 40 years, and, the, and I can't keep up with it. Internationally, domestically, um, so much is happening in so many states. Even the federal government, the obstacles are, are breaking down. You know, uh, with, with the appropriations bills that are blocking DEA from enforcing uh, the law against medical cannabis, it's mind-boggling that Republican-controlled Congresses are voting this way. Mm. You know, even you know the, the DEA and the administration are, are now seriously thinking about rescheduling. We'll see what that means, but that they're saying this publicly. Um, again, there's a sign. You know, you know, this is not like, you know, a court has held a gun to their head and said, you know, you have to stop screwing around with some litigant. Um, it's the administration moving forward. So that um, this is an incredibly exciting time for uh, young people, for people of any age who are interested in, in the liberty to use cannabis, the liberty to uh, medicate themselves in an appropriate way uh, to see what, what the, future, the future is producing for us right now. Now, I'll get your uh, perspective from both of you on this. I'll start with Eric. Uh, Pennsylvania looks like they're going to pass, you know, the governor's going to sign their latest medical cannabis law. However, it follows in the footsteps of Minnesota and New York, no whole plant, uh, non-smokable stuff. Is there a fear that as, we, as we're getting some of this, uh, you know, the, the reluctance of the, of the drug warriors to, to give up on this drug war, that maybe some of it's predicated on their knowledge that, oh, now we can pharmaceuticalize it and keep control that way? I think that the uh, risk of pharmaceuticalization of the industry, in some sense, is real. I think that that's, it's, a, it's a concern that we need to keep in mind and to work against. I think that the reality is that the effectiveness and the value, the preferability of whole cannabis is going to assure that the market itself is going to keep it that way. You know, Pennsylvania's law is, is simply not the end of the line in Pennsylvania for medical cannabis right now. Is that uh, yeah, I, I largely agree, although, um, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that pharmaceuticalization of cannabis is inherently a bad thing. I think the way that they're going about it is 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 pretty terrible. Um, but, you know, there there is going to be a need for 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 pharmaceuticalized cannabinoids. There are certain conditions that are not they're just not going to be treatable by whole cannabis and things like you know, if you're talking about alternatives to chemotherapy um, or you know, treatments for neurodegenerative diseases, like these are going to have to be you know, heavily, uh, uh, not necessarily synthesized, but um, uh, uh, you know, it's going to need to be pharmaceuticalized for these to be really effective. Um, but that's not what's happening in Pennsylvania and, and, and New York and, and Minnesota. What they're basically doing is medical, mar medical marijuana under the guise of something that kind of sort of looks pharmaceutical. Um, <laughs> and that, you know, that, that to me is really, is really a, a sort of a stopgap measure for states that are, they're just, they're a little too scared to go all the way when it comes to medical marijuana. And so this is something that, that to them feels more like what they're used to when it comes to medicine. So I can understand from a legislator standpoint why they're going this route. I just think it's, you know, I think when you're talking about making medical cannabis available to patients in need, you need to give them a wide spectrum of options and taking away the, 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 the option that the majority of patients use seems like a really bad idea. Uh, you know, all that said, I do think this is sort of a stopgap because we're going to see, you know, in November likely, 
you know, five more states or four or five more states legalized for adult use. We're going to see more regular medical marijuana bills. And I think it's going to be really hard for states like New York and, and, uh, uh, and Minnesota and Pennsylvania, you know, three, four years down the road to say, yeah, this is a really effective system when you've got full legalization sweeping the nation and you've got, you know, real medical marijuana all around the country. And eventually this, it's going to have to shift to either real medical marijuana or just straight-up legalization, which, which sort of resolves the issue as well. Then you have the whole range of products from, you know, whole smoke products to, to compounded, um, uh, uh, you know, formulas and, and oils and everything else, and that'll happen under legalization, and that will resolve it. And then the pharmaceutical companies can create these really targeted pharmaceutical drugs as well, just not in this sort of silly, you know, state-sanctioned system of pseudo-pharmacalization, pharmaceuticalization. <laughs> yes, yes. Now, uh, the most recent polls have shown, you know, overwhelming majority support for marijuana legalization, and especially medical marijuana legalization. Yep. But when you look at any other drug, it never breaks above 8 or 9%. So as we turn the page from cannabis legalization into other drug reforms, especially when these drugs may not be safer than alcohol, how do we tackle that? That's a, that's a great question. I think that's the that's really the million dollar question for the movement now. Um, you know, one thing that does concern me is if we're if we're successful in legalizing cannabis without continuing the conversation around these other drugs, it might be a really long time before we're able to make significant progress when it comes to dealing with drugs that, you know, non-cannabis drugs, drugs some folks would consider, hard, you know, quote-unquote hard drugs. Um, you know, people are a lot less, less sympathetic. Uh, there are way fewer users. Um, so while everybody knows a, a cannabis consumer, um, not everybody knows a heroin user. Not everybody knows a cocaine user. Um, or if they do, they, they probably don't know that person's a cocaine mm-hmm. user. Uh, people are, le- you know, less, less likely to talk about it. You know, you don't have, you know, cocaine fest like you have hemp fest. But I'm wearing right? a cocaine t-shirt. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just not that, you know, it's not that so acceptable. So I worry that if we take marijuana out of the equation entirely, that we're, we're leaving a, a, a fairly vulnerable population, people who may have real addiction issues, um, you know, in a, in, a, in a really difficult position. So, you know, I, I think we need to start thinking about creative ways to manufacture, produce, and distribute um, uh, so-called hard drugs, non, you know, non-cannabis, currently not, illegal non-cannabis drugs. Um, I don't think that any Anybody's, I don't think that we're ever going to see, you know, uh, cocaine dispensaries the way that we see marijuana dispensaries, but we might see you know, something in between it being sold at, a, at, you know, sort of a pharmacy and, and over the counter, um, something that's a little bit more controlled, maybe something that's prescription based. But certainly we, we need to take the, the manufacturing and distribution of these substances out of the hands of the black market and criminals, put them into something that's more heavily regulated um, and make sure that we're putting real money into treatment uh, uh, for those who need it so that those who do wind up having issues um, can get treatment without stigmatization and without being uh, marginalized in, in society. And, you know, I don't know exactly how we do that. I don't think anybody knows exactly how we do that. It's why these conferences are so important that we have folks coming together to talk about how we, you know, how we handle the post-prohibition area for non-cannabis. Uh, what do you think about that, Eric? I, I was struck by what I thought was, this, you know, even with um, Chris's caveats, he, I think, puts his finger exactly on, you know, the heart of it, figuring out what are the systems of regulated control that we need to develop. I think there will be experimentation. He is correct about the hurdles of fewer users and the stigma. But as, as he was describing this, it was very important, I think, for our movement to recognize we've got to be talking about legalization of all drugs, that the public health need is so essential. Drug users' lives matter. Drug users' lives matter. And the way that you end up 
protecting them is through a system of legal access, which ending the stigma, ending the shame, you know, and of course ending the criminal supply. Um, so, teaching people, how, you know, what are the safer ways to use drugs, making them available. Um, I, you know, my own kind of model is, I mean, and you know, to radical rust, this may sound like a real off note. Is <laughs> what I call the stockbroker model, uh-huh. which is, you know, when you go to a stockbroker with your investment. They are barred from sort of making the most risky investment. They're supposed to begin by sort of saying, well, do you have a savings account? Do you own your home? Do you have a mortgage? You know, what are the most reasonable incremental steps for dealing with this rather than sort of saying, let us put us in this high, high risk thing? And so in my model for drug use, someone would say, well, I'm, you know, uh, you know, it's, you know, it's the cocaine dispensary or, you know, and it's, it's the cocaine and drug dispensary. And somebody says, well, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm here because I want to start using cocaine. And so the answer is, so what are your objectives? What do you want to get out of this cocaine use? So a guy says, well, I mean, I'm, I can't have an, I'm having trouble getting erections. Well, okay, let's, maybe cocaine's not your first treatment. <laughs> you know, maybe that's not the f- first drug to deal with that, you know. Uh, you know, or, you know, I'm, you have know. Have you tried whiskey? You know, <laughs> or, you know, or maybe you're drinking too much whiskey. That's right. You know, or, you know, um, so that... So that the idea is, you know, that, that, the, that just as the stockbroker is governed by private regulation, there's a private association, there's a trade association with ethics, there's insurance liability, as well as sort of the government regulation, that we create an sort of integrated face of controls so that the counselor, it's really a counseling relationship. You want to go to someone who can counsel you in the use of these drugs in ways that make sense for your objectives. And to, if all the drugs are legal, then they sort of say, well, you know what? You know, maybe you want a different kind of stimulant. Maybe you don't need this at all. I mean, you know, to the extent that people, you want people to be as educated at the time they're actually sort of saying, okay, this is what I'm going to use because now I understand what it's going to do for me. Then you've got a system that makes sense. Thank you so much, guys. And if you have any contact info or websites you want to tell people about um, my website's cjpf.org. That's for Criminal Justice Policy Foundation, where I've been the executive director for many years. Sure, you can uh, check us out at ForefrontVentures.com. That's the number four, and then FrontVentures.com. Uh, That's our website. And uh, I'll put in the plug. I'm going to go to SchoolsNotPrisons.com or SSDP.org and support the great work that uh, Students for Sensible Drug Policy is doing. All right. And they've turned out great people like you, Chris. Thanks, guys, for you, and uh, have a great conference. Russ, thank you, too. This is the Russ Belleville Show. The Russ Belleville Show is blogging and podcasting daily at RadicalRuss.com. You take a seed, you manage, you grow it, you giant, you roll it, you smoke it. Now it's time for Toker Talk Radio, the voice of the marijuana nation. What are you people? Or you can tow. I am here. Uh, or you can talk. I experimented with marijuana and didn't inhale. Or-
more you can talk and talk. Ten federal criminal penalties for possession of up to one ounce of marijuana. While we talk about Toke on Toker Talk Radio. So, by the way, when it comes to pot, you know, if you're 40 years old, you live in a log cabin in Oregon, you got 12 giant pot plants in your backyard, have a ball. Live from beautiful Potland, Oregon at Rolla J Studios. Plus your calls live at 971-533-7111. They're walking on their pants with their cap on backwards, listening to Enema Man and Snoopy Snoopy Poop Dog. What's to keep somebody from getting all potted up on weed and then getting behind the wheel? Gangway theory doesn't work. It's a reality. Holland, is it real? Don't tease me. We're locking up people that take a couple of puffs of marijuana, and, and the, the next thing you know, they got 10 years. And now, here's your host, the guru of ganja graphics, the sultan of sativa statistics, and the worst nightmare of a reefer-mad prohibitionist. A polite, perspicacious, productive pothead with a propensity for PowerPoint. Radical Russ Belleville. All right, welcome back, tokers and tokets and non-toking lovers of liberty. It is Monday, April 18th, 2016. I'm Radical Russ. We're still here in New York City attending the Canvas Science and Policy Summit held at the City University of New York. We've got all sorts of panels going on. I'm still quite busy getting involved with all of those, getting the recordings done for you. We'll be bringing these recordings throughout the rest of this week. Plus, you can check on CannabisRadio.com. We'll all post some of the full audio from some of these presentations and panels. Uh, you can do your own research on that. I'm going to clip out some of the best of the stuff that I've heard over this past week and bring it to you here on the Russ Belville Show and on Toker Talk Radio. So you'll be able to get your full dose of cannabis science, policy, history, culture, health, Everything you'd ever want to know about the cannabis plant. We're going to start off this one with some activism. I was able to meet with the activists from DCMJ on Pennsylvania Avenue in front of the White House where they were ready to give away cannabis seeds, seedlings, and cannabis itself in accordance with Washington, D.C.'s legalized grow and give system. The Secret Service didn't seem to like that idea and moved us out to H Street, but we still had the event, and it was really exciting to see all the citizens in Washington, D.C., the adults who were able to line up and get some free cannabis. We take you now back to Washington, D.C., this last weekend. We legalized cannabis, and right here, this street is D.C. property, so we are here exercising our freedom. The police conveniently uh, closed off that area, but we are here. We're going to get a stamp to show they're 21. Some folks have brought seeds to share, buds to share, but we're making sure that everyone is an adult because it's only legal if you're an adult over 21 years of age. In 2014, 115,000 District of Columbia residents voted to legalize the home possession and growth of cannabis at their home. You can carry up to two ounces of marijuana on you in the District of Columbia on non-federal land. You can give up to one ounce of seeds, buds, or cuttings to other adults. And today we are sharing seeds and buds with other adults. So we're going to create a line if we can. Make sure. We're not trying to mob each other. Make sure you introduce yourself to your neighbor. We are all friends here. This is a 2016 seed share outside the White House. We were here two weeks ago with a 51-foot inflatable joint. It was pretty epic. This is also going to be an open mic. This is a White House seed share, and 
Cannabis Summit. We want to hear stories about you. We want to hear stories about the seeds you're sharing, the buds that you've got to share to other adults. And if you are a person that has uh, cannabis to share, you should come over here. Radical Russ here on the south lawn of the White House, where DCMJ is participating in a White House Seed Share and Cannabis Summit. You can find out more information at info at dcmj.org. They are exhibiting their grow and give rights here in D.C., where they can uh, share cannabis with others. It's unclear how many people have brought cannabis to share. But if you do have some, check the person's hand to see if they've uh, proven that they're an adult so you don't get in trouble. If you are leaving, leave through Pennsylvania Avenue. Because technically Pennsylvania Avenue is District of Columbia property. The park behind us is federal land. If you walk to the park carrying cannabis on you, you could get arrested for possession on federal property. One of the reasons why we're here today is to try to tell Obama that he should use his power as the President of the United States to completely take cannabis off the Controlled Substances Act. Take it off. It's been down there for almost, for over 40 years now, and it's done absolutely nothing but put millions of people in jail, ruin lives. As a Schedule One substance, it's on par with LSD and heroin. But methamphetamine, that's a Schedule Two. Obama's saying methamphetamine is safer than marijuana. Isn't that messed up, folks? Well, okay, we're not that giving away yet. We're getting there. To and we're here to remind the president that he has power to leave a legacy to the American people that he freed not just 200, but thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that are in jail right now for the possession of a plant. Well, at least nobody's in line. This are we in a single file line? Excuse me, Radical Russ from Cannabis Radio. What you got going here for the signatures? Uh, this is to raise the minimum wage in D.C. to $15 an hour. Oh, I'm so glad you're doing that. How's, the, how's your uh, signature gathering going today? It's great today. We've got a captive audience. No doubt about that. Well, good <laughs> luck with you. Great, thank you. Radical Russ from Cannabis Radio. Anyone want to talk? Anyone want to say how cool this is? Nobody, everybody's shy. It's radio and everybody's shy. Nobody can see you. <laughs> Nobody can find you. I get you. I get you. Well, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, I'm out from Portland, Oregon, so getting to see people on the East Coast be able to have free weeds, pretty nice. Pretty nice. Keep it up, you guys. Good work. I let people assume that I'm great, but lately they can see me see through the gates and I land on the other side where I reside is music and shit. Walls are breaking, the fence is rusty. Property is up for the ticket, but the windows are dusty. They can't see inside the wall. There's no reason to because these floors that I walk on have no foundation yet I talk on. I see chalk on the board for life, lessons to be learned, but I'm too focused on the burns that I burned to be worried about my father scorn, his only born, his most adored. Giving me advice that I just ignore, see, he may think that it's wise, but it's based on what I deem as folklore. I've got heart stores and closed pores not opening up, man, that's too much of a chore. Feel I need cleansing, but can't find the right soap in the store. Can't find hopes that people contemplate at the end by rope. Not me, though, but I can see where they're coming from. In a sticky situation, like they spend all day walking on chewing gum, I mean me, I feel I've been bruising some. I can't even find this here music fun. I steer clear stupid fub, and instead I'm in the garden and fruit in the sun. Damn. Yeah. I'm a vegetable. My brain is dead and my heart is still numb. 
I look in the sky like, who's the son? Can I talk to his father? Because, yo, I'm not the one. No, you say that's blasphemy. Nah. I just got questions. Won't run. See, walk by faith and not by sight. Mess around and walk into her and bail. Another man one night said, you may be hurt, but you'll be all right. Pain is temporary. At least for the time you take this flight, right? High by the strife that you deal with in your life. But that glimmer of hope flickers and then fades. Sparks fall to desire. Sunrise has now become quite bitter. Right, so we, we, we can't go into the We go that way? We have to clear the avenue. So, so if you guys want to go that way, you're going to have to go to, uh, to Pennsylvania Avenue. Can we go up to 8th Street over there? To 17th Street or 8th Street, yes. All right, is that all right? I can't do it all at a time because I don't know about everybody. Thank you very much. All right, guys. Yeah, we appreciate you. If you feel like it's something that benefits you in your life, thank you so much for being here and sharing what you're experiencing. I genuinely appreciate it. Yeah, my name is John Harrison III. I don't see you anymore. Secret Service is beginning to motion for us to move. At Cannabis Summit, uh, we've just been asked by the Secret Service to relocate because they are closing down Pennsylvania Avenue conveniently to kick us off. So we're going to relocate to the top of 16th Street to H, so when we take photos, we'll still have the White House in the background. So if you do uh, would like to follow us, please do. We're going to be walking straight out of the park that way and going up to the top of the sidewalk over there. All right, folks, we're going to take ourselves another break here, pay a few more of the bills. But when we come back, we've got more of the highlights from my East Coast swing. I was in Washington, D.C., actually Arlington, Virginia, to be accurate, for the SSDP National Conference. And we've got Steve from Flexure Rights will be joining us right after the break to tell us all about a new application that can help us keep tabs on the cops. Be right back right after this. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Northwest Alternative Health, Eugene's premier medical marijuana clinic, is proud to sponsor the Oregon Marijuana Business Conference. Are you prepared for the changes in the recreational and medical marijuana markets? The OMB presents the state's top industry experts, along with over 40 exhibitors, and features a keynote by Dr. Carl Hart. Also, tickets include a celebrity interview and private after-party with the one and only Tommy Chong. Join us Sunday, April 24th at the downtown Eugene Hilton, and be a part of Oregon's fastest-growing industry. Check out OregonMBC.com for more details. New beginner guitars and banjos are often constructed much better than ones built before your time. Why struggle? Get a new instrument or fix the old one. The trusted professionals at the Fingerboard Extension will evaluate your instrument for free. Repairs are priced for people who work for a living. Stop by the Fingerboard Extension downtown Corvallis at 120 Northwest 2nd Street today or check out its inventory on the web at fingerboardextension.com. Warning, hits taken on this show are larger than they appear. Do not try this at home. These people are professionals. <coughs> or at least they pay me to say that. This is Dan Michaels from danmichaelsaudio.com, and you're listening to Radical Russ on CannabisRadio.com. Welcome back, everybody. Radical Russ here at the Students for Sensible Drug Policy Conference in Arlington, Virginia. And we're joined by Steve, who's got a very interesting application to tell us about. Uh, Steve, tell folks about the app and more, you know, what it's all about. Oh, sure thing. Uh, well, uh, I've been a Know Your Rights educator for about 15 years. We've made a couple of educational videos. The most recent one was uh, 10 Rules for Dealing with Police. And, um, you know, we've helped 
protect a lot of people during their rides. People who say, well, I, I asked the officer, am I free to go? I didn't consent to searches, and I was able to, you know, exit that police encounter safely. But still, a lot of people do assert their rights well uh, after viewing our materials and still say, you know, Steve, I still had a negative encounter. The office were, officers were discourteous. Um, they were abusive. Maybe even there was excessive force. What should I do now? And so the shorthand is, well, you should file a police complaint. But there's a lot of caveats that go into that. There are certain scenarios where you might not want to directly file a police complaint. So long story short, what we've created is a web app which takes you through that process. It's called Open Police Complaints. It's kind of like TurboTax, but for your police complaints. But instead of instead of doing your tax returns, essentially we're making it easier for you to create a perfect professional quality police complaint that you can submit directly to the department, your the particular department where the incident happened. But then a lot of people say, well, they're going to ignore that anyway. And they might. So the other avenue we have is that we're able to publicly publish the complaint with the officer's name attached and everything is public. So this is part of an open source data campaign as well. So even if the departments ignore it, you will be able to uh, submit it publicly uh, online uh, as well. So we can create an extra layer of transparency for your complaint. Do you Have you heard any from uh, police unions that might object to an officer being accused of, of some sort of wrongdoing and that being made publicly available before it's been adjudicated? Well, the, the app is still currently in development. In fact, we're doing u, uh, user testing right now, also known as beta testing. And so when it does get released, you know, I do anticipate that we will have some departments that will object to the fact that we will be, uh, in some cases, uh, publicizing the officer's name. For example, if the user decides to sort of go the fully brave route, which is having their name public, we will, by reciprocity, also allow the officer's name to be public as well. And so if departments are upset about the fact that that's public, the, what we will do is we will urge them to go ahead and investigate that complaint as soon as possible. That is the best way to adjudicate any possible malicious allegations. Of course, we're not going to be able to tell. We can't get into the complainant's minds. We're not going to encourage people to file malicious complaints. But when it comes to that level, that's where we urge the departments to go ahead and file the uh, to, to investigate those complaints. And if they arrive at a different uh, conclusion, they can publish that alongside the complaint itself. And we urge them to arrive at what's called a final disposition letter. Oftentimes, it's usually just mailed to the complainant themselves. And we'll also urge and allow complainants to post those letters as well. So we're trying to create more data. We're trying to collect it. We're trying to make it more publicly accessible so that there's better transparency. So I think this will allow for better outcomes. It'll help identify officers that might have behavioral problems to make it easier for those police chiefs to feel a little bit more pressure to take some action, help other third-party lawyers, community activists to access this data uh, to try to identify uh, trends of how policing is happening in their communities. This application is something to be used post-encounter. Does it do, uh, it doesn't do any video recording or audio recording? The app essentially, it, it pairs well with any sort of video recording you have. So if you do use an app that, that does record video, even just your, your own phone's native app, when you do create your complaint, you can attach that link if you've uploaded it to YouTube or Vimeo, and you can attach that link to the evidence section of your complaint if, in fact, you have collected video. But the app itself uh, is primarily focused on creating a perfect police complaint. And, and this will, the complaint will be forwardable online through the app to any Absolutely. city, uh, county, state department? You'll be able to, well, for one, you'll be able to share it, you know, through your own social media networks, uh, but it'll be, it'll be submitted, it can be submitted directly 
to your department. Now, there will be some exceptions because some, some departments simply will not allow a complaint to be submitted via email, which is will be our primary mechanism. They'll say, oh, what needs to be submitted on our actual form, you need to come into the station. Some departments have some bad, very closed policies. Mm. And so what we can do, if that is the case, if your department insists you must file it on their form, you must come into the station, we'll say, well, you have an option to go ahead and copy the report, submit it you know, to the station or mail it in. But meanwhile, we're also keeping a record of what departments have bad policies for collecting complaints so that we can score them and evaluate them over time because we think the best practice is to be open, is to allow complaints to be submitted through third parties. And so if the complaint, if the department doesn't accept it uh, through these things, we'll be able to essentially keep score of that. Meanwhile, the complaint will be submitted in full through our website so that other third-party activists, accountability people, lawyers, academics will be able to access it so we can no, we no longer fully have to rely on just the police departments themselves to police themselves. We're giving them a little bit of help. Oh, that's fantastic, Steve. And uh, you say it's in beta development right now, but right. when people want to get their hands on this, where will they go? Oh, openpolicecomplaints.org. Okay. Uh, and that's connected through our – it'll be connected through flexyourrights.org, which is uh, our, our long-term uh, site. The Open Police Complaints is a project of flexyourrights.org. Yeah, Flex Your Rights was one of the first organizations that I happened upon when I started my activism 10 years ago. And I've always found your videos and materials to be very helpful for people to demystify uh, the police encounter. I mean – I, I read a tweet the other day that said, uh, I'm sure glad we learned about parallelograms in high school. It comes in real handy here during parallelogram season, alluding to tax season, right? right. They don't teach us these things, and, and you guys have been doing a great uh, job in doing that. Uh, have you broadened that outreach to, I know the Black Lives Matter uh, mm-hmm. organiz- uh, movement is very popular, uh, tailored that outreach to different groups? Well, absolutely. You know, the Black Lives Matter has been, I think, a very important movement for, for uh, bringing attention to police accountability issues. And so all of our materials are available uh, and uh, are embraced by, by all the different communities that are out there, whatever, you know, with all the so- different social movements that are concerned about that are concerned about police oversight, accountability, equity under the law and the Constitution. Our materials have been uh, embraced. All right. Check it out. O- openpolicecomplaints.org. That's right. Complaints. Pl- yeah, it could be, yeah, it could be. <laughs> OK, there will be multiple complaints, I hope. <laughs> And uh, FlexYourRights.org if you can't remember that. Thanks, Russ. All right. Thank you so much, Steve. Appreciate it. Hey, you in my class? I am today. more to life than marijuana. I just can't remember what it is. Why'd I come in here? This is the Rush Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Welcome back, Tokers and Tokets. We now bring you forward to the Cannabis Science and Policy Summit. It's taking place Sunday and today here at the Graduate Center at the City University of New York, sponsored by Botech and NYU. And we bring you to the second half of a panel that was entitled Designing Reforms Short of Legalization that featured Mike Trace, the former UK Deputy Drug Czar, Bo Kilmer, the co-director of RAND's Drug Policy Research Center, Norm Wetterow, the physician and addiction specialist, Sue Roosh, the president and CEO of National Families in Action, and your next speaker, Kevin Sabet, the CEO of Project Sam. 
Okay, perfectly clear speech again. We're doing well. Uh, no pressure, Kevin. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> now Kevin Sabet, uh, our third speaker. Uh, Kevin, uh, tell us what you think. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks, Mike, and thanks for uh, everyone for coming to this uh, discussion. Um, I think it's an incredibly important discussion and one that, that really does get short shrift. It's not as sexy, it's not as glamorous as talking about um, sort of what legalization or legal regulation is like. And I think it's also just a lot more confusing. I think it's actually a lot more difficult for the reasons that, that both Bo and uh, Dr. Redwar, uh sort of discussed today. Um, I remember, actually, Rob McCoon was one of my uh, professors, and, and Bo was in my TA over oh, more than 10 years ago at Berkeley, and we won't talk about where Rob has since gone to uh, since Berkeley. That was devastating to hear. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I remember one of the first classes that we had on drug policy, he asked everybody uh, to raise their hand if they thought California had decriminalized marijuana. Two people raised their hand. I was one of them, I think I'll proudly say. And I think it was about maybe one or two others out of a class of maybe 100. Um, no one knew that California had decriminalized marijuana for the last from at that time, 20 plus years. Um, I remember another sort of, I'm going to get into some stats and some slides, but I think these are important anecdotes. I, I remember another, uh, my second day on the job in the Obama administration, we were getting together to talk about what would President Obama's drug strategy look like. And we had received a lot of input from different people. And um, one of the one thing we heard is, you know, what we saw is you should legalize drugs just like Portugal did. And uh, I was like, well, wait a minute. And then they had a they had like. 10 newspaper articles, you know, with the headline basically being Portugal legalizes drugs, use goes down, or Portugal legalizes drugs and harm is, harms have gone down. And it was, you know, obviously for those of us who followed Portugal, we knew that they didn't, you know, legalize in the sense of Colorado and Washington. And in, re in reality, the supply is not legal at all, that it was simply sort of a, an administrative kind of um, process, which um, people like Alex and others have written a lot about. Um, and uh, But that just showed the tremendous confusion about what was, you know, about what people thought policies were. And then there was, you know, another time where Massachusetts was considering to decriminalize marijuana in 2008. And um, when, you know, somebody looked at, well, what is this proposed versus other decriminalized states? And it was completely different. So I just think this this goes to the difficulty in, in, in these concepts. And people ask me, actually, and they say when we're talking about you know, it's very clear where my views are on legalization. I, you know, I think that completely agree with, with, with John this morning that we are on our way in the United States um, to creating a tobacco or alcohol-like model that, um, unfortunately, um, a lot of the good research that many of us do, uh, and not many, but others do here, um, you know, gets, gets like, you know, thank you for your work, we're going to shelf it um, while we, you know, while we listen to the industry. And that's very unfortunate. But, you know, we get, I get a lot of people saying, well, why don't you, you know, why don't you just come out and say decriminalization, that you're in favor of decriminalization, Kevin, because you've said, Kevin, that you don't want to see people go to prison. You don't want to see people low-level amounts get arrest records. Because you know, one thing we haven't talked about yet is the devastating effect that a, an arrest record in the day, this day and age of the Internet can have. And um, that, that you, know, you may not have served. You know, we, we know that there's less than half a percent of people in state prisons for marijuana possession alone. But we also know that 700,000, not people, but instances of arrest, probably a lot of overlap. We don't know how much overlap. In, but in a, you know, probably not enough to say that it's minuscule. I mean, it's like hundreds of thousands of probably different people have arrests a year, every year in this country, um, usually resulting from a you know, traffic stop or some other issue that was going on that marijuana was then found in the pocket or smelled or whatever. Um, that would lead to an arrest that could be on that person's record. And so, you know, Kevin, talk about decriminalization. The, the, the difficulty, though, and I don't think we've come up with a term, is that, that term is just terribly overbroad and unclear. Because my response is, okay, well, do you mean, you know, youth or adults? Public or private use? 
supply or demand side. Plants or no plants. One ounce, two ounces, half an ounce, three joints, 60. How do we define what that means? And so I think it's just been a, it's a task for the academic community to think about, you know, what are some more specific and better terms? How can we talk about these issues more, more sort of, yeah, more specifically and say, well, this is what I mean when I say that. And I don't think that happens a lot. So I, it, there's just so much confusion about what decriminalization means. Um, if you looked at the headlines after Colorado legalized the supply of marijuana in November of 2012, we, one of my, one of our research assistants did this at UF. Over half of the headlines uses the word, and articles use the word decriminalization. Colorado had decriminalized marijuana since 2001. Denver had legalized possession in the mid-2000s. That, that wasn't the new news of November 2012. The new news was that the supply is legal, we're going to have stores, and we're going to have candy and advertising and all that. That was the news. But decriminalized was the word used in over half of the news stories. The coverage in Colorado, you can't use the excuse that these were papers outside the state. Many of them were in the state. So I, I do think it's terribly confusing. So I will go to the slides. I, th I wanted to show this in case John didn't show, but he did, which is very good. Um, obviously, just very quickly, and I'm going to talk about this in the next session at two, but, you know, what do we get with current legalization? I think we get rampant commercialization. Colorado is now the number one state um, for youth use in the country. The advertising and commercialization, and we think a thriving underground market that sells to people who either aren't 21, don't want to buy, you know, um, want to buy their marijuana outside of hours, and more importantly, don't want to pay the hefty tax. I walked into a Colorado shop after they legalized and there was a dividing line between the store. And they asked me, Kevin, are you medical? Let's say my first name. They didn't know my name. Are you, are you medical? Are you recreational? They asked me. And I said, well, I don't know. What's the difference? What should I be? You know? And it was like, well, here's the thing. How much time do you have? Now, this was a strange question. How much time do I have? And they said, well, um, if you have about half an hour, we can get the, the physician here to do the review. $200 cash, and it's kind of like Costco. You get a membership card, and then you get discounts, like Costco. And by the way, they also had free samples. Um, and so I said, well... All right, why would I do that? You've just legalized marijuana. People were dancing in the streets, you know, on the news. Remember the news coverage from New Year's around it? Because there's New Year's is a slow news cycle in the U.S. So you start, so there was so much out there. Was, it was a huge news that on January 1st, 2014, you could go to a store in Mar Colorado and buy recreational marijuana. I said, a week ago you were dancing in the streets about recreational. Why are you trying to steer me to the medical market? What's, I mean, I get you get the $200, but is that the reason? And they said, well, because, Kevin, the, the tax is not, you don't have the taxes you do on medical as you do on recreational. So if you have some time and you have a, you know, and then it was like, do you have a headache, do you have a backache, what do you have? If you have something wrong with you, you get your card and you get your less tax. It was, it was just very eye-opening to me and it showed where things were going. Um, I think the other issue we don't talk about as much, but it's connected to commercialization, is the promotion of special interests. Last week um, in Colorado, a, a proposal for for THC caps similar to the Netherlands. I mean, it's amazing. Rob hit the nail on the head when he said, we used to consider the Netherlands. That was like, oh my God, we never want to, you know, for those who were against legalization, like the Netherlands, we would never want to be like the Netherlands. Now we're like, can we please be like the Netherlands? You know, lower advertising, caps on 15% THC on a lot of products. Fewer, I mean, it's, it's just incredible how that has switched. Um, but this just uh, was... Um, 
defeated in the legislature. There was a proposal for a limit on number and location of stores. There are a Denver Post investigation found um, many more stores in poorer minority communities in Colorado than in the rest. Surprise, surprise, when you look at alcohol, very similar. Um, so there was a there was some legislation to try and limit that. Failed. Um, and then there was some other legislation in Washington, but also in Colorado, about where this money is going. What can it actually go to? Okay, we know we have the tax revenue. What can we do with it? And unfortunately, um, this was like a couple months ago in Washington State that the proposal failed um, to divert it to prevention and treatment, even though that was the promise, diverted to the general fund instead, and I don't know, paying for salary increases and things like that. But that has been, I mean, maybe it's a uniquely American problem. Problem, very possible. A huge issue with the current um, thing. Now, I do want to um, uh, uh, flat, uh, you know, uh, flatter Bo by uh, using his slide here on um, this was a very helpful slide. This was the Rand Vermont um, continuum, uh, 12 alternatives to the status quo. But as a good student, I'm going to challenge the teacher a little bit um, and say that while this is very helpful, in my mind, these were really just versions of legalization. Uh, in fact, um, you know, th and they, I think but would agree that's that's what their versions of legal supply, which probably which is what they were asked to do. But if we're looking at it outside the Vermont model, um, you know, really the only U.S. model outside D.C. is the standard commercial model. This is where we've ended up. I think it might be helpful, and I just sort of uh, took some time, not much time, so it's going to be very, very sort of you know, a, dra a draft and and really kind of um, uh, uh, cut and dry. I tried to look at what are alternatives to the status quo that do not involve legalization. So rather than the alternatives for that do not involve standard commercial model, what are the alternatives? And I threw out some, we threw out some things from some different places. Obviously, this is the um, administrative process, which we have nothing like that in the U.S. in terms of an administrative process for what would have been a criminal type of sanction. We don't, it doesn't exist in our system. It doesn't mean we can't create it, but it doesn't exist right now. Um, but what do we have? You know, we have things like, you know, in many places. In fact, this is really, if you look at the de facto U.S. policy, I would argue that we're really in most places, ex I would say, except for some counties in the Deep South, fines and misdemeanor offense for use. Now, if you look at California, you don't go anywhere near misdemeanor in, for low-level use. It's a what they would call they still call it a C summons or it's a ticket, like a warning kind of thing. It's not. It's, that doesn't even reach misdemeanor. Um, but so, what are the different things? Obviously, Portugal, maybe what ASAM called for assessment for use and referral to treatment. Um, I mean, you could argue this is sort of the Dutch model, not enforcement. I mean, it's again, it's incredible that we're sort of citing the Dutch model towards prohibition versus the sort of what we have in the U.S. now, but in many ways we are. Um, you know, grow your own, perhaps in small amounts. You could argue that's a sort of model of Washington, D.C., but there's considerable controversy in D.C. now about should we have cannabis clubs, should we have, you know, sort of public spaces for that or not. That's an evolving policy. Do we just simply say kind of what we said earlier, we're going to sort of ignore it, sort of like maybe the default Pakistan policy that I'm not going to say that you said that, but, you know, sort of this default policy of we're just kind of going to, imagine that it's not here and tolerate private use um, and then we go into the non-commercial supply and there's, pro there's probably tons more in the in there that you could talk about but I don't think this gets talked about a lot and um, I think that um, you know we should we should try and think about what that would look like um, the RAND report I, I, I'm glad that that Bo brought it up about um, sort of how much did Vermont spend on prohibiting marijuana uh, and in the year after decriminalization as Bo mentioned the criminal cases decreased 80% so we know that there can be savings and 
costs about a here we go a dollar per year is what I think the report said right um, and so you know that was very that was very helpful work from Rand to talk to look at you know what what's actually been done and what are what are the things that that could what are the outcomes of that um, I'm not going to go into these models but my point is that I did a very cursory look in the U.S. to look at what models there are. There are scores of different uh, non-criminal models in different counties and states all over. This is, I mean, the state of New Jersey has a conditional discharge program. In other words, you get assessed to either get education or treatment. 90% of people get education. They're not referred to treatment. Um, and then it comes off of their record. Like um, in Leon County, Florida, it's first time and second time is civil citations. In Maryland, there's a diversion program. In Montgomery County, which is the largest county in Maryland, um, they, Maryland State has a decriminalization law now that requires requires a kind of education. The, the point is that these things are being implemented. They're not as sexy as Colorado or Washington or, you know, Uruguay or other places that we discuss. Um, but I think that they're worth looking at. And I don't think there's been a ton of evaluation. But I, again, with the caveats that not all decriminalization laws are alike, in, in the U.S., the, there's wide variation. In Europe, there's very wide variation. When you think about countries like the Czech Republic and Italy and Spain, being different from 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 maybe some other countries, um, and so I think we have to realize that there that there is that diversity, and sort of be on the same wavelength when it comes to the terms, and make sure that we define the terms well um, before we talk about it. Otherwise, it sort of leads to a lot of confusion. But realize that there are um, many many options and choices. Um, I, th I think, though, know, it's still a difficult question because, again, there are different circumstances. I would say almost, you could argue that almost every kind of marijuana possession sort of interaction would be a different circumstance. Again, are they minors? Were they not? Were they using at the time? Were they not? Was it in public? Was it not? Were they driving? Were they not? How much was it? These are incredibly difficult questions that, you know, when you're in the legislature trying to have a blanket law for everything. I think one of the reasons we haven't seen a lot of sort of a lot of this implementation is it's just a lot harder to do. But hopefully we can become we can begin thinking about it. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin, and thanks to all of our speakers bringing us in just about on time. So we have uh, 20, 25 minutes for uh, discussion and debate. Um, usual format, uh, put your hand up, I'll call on you to speak. Wait for the microphone to get to you because this is being recorded. And I think I'm going to, ask, ask to ask, have to ask the organizers, is this going out in Pakistan? Because I'll have to retract that earlier comment. Um, so I'll check out the confidentiality aspects. So uh, feel free to uh, put your questions and opinions openly to our speakers. And uh, I'll, I'll moderate the... Uh, uh, the process of the question. So hands up, first up, please. Lady there, and then the lady there. Um, thanks, I really enjoyed this. Um, so, Kevin, I, you know, I certainly agree with you that there are a whole lot of different models that can be used, but one of the driving forces here is money, and um, how do you deal with that issue that a lot of the states, and particularly as we heard earlier, that if one state starts to get all of the, you know, all of the financial benefits from it and then it spills over... I mean, obviously, that's that's a huge part of it is money for states, money for industry. The infl I mean, who gets rich? I actually just wrote an article about this for Mark's site on about.com. You know, who gets rich under decriminalization? I mean, maybe if you get the $100 fine or something and you can enforce it. I think there are some problems with the fine structures. It's, and sometimes it's more expensive to collect the fine than it is to get, you know, when you have the money. So, um, yeah, that's, that's a 
I don't have an answer other than um, I think there does need to be, and this is probably, you know, Bo can maybe speak to this, and it's going to be an incredibly difficult task, but you're going to have to make the case that the increased use that we already have and that people like Professor Calkins are talking about would dwarf any money that you would get. Right now, every dollar in alcohol and tax revenue, uh, alcohol and tobacco tax revenue that we get costs us $10 in the United States in social costs. It's about the same 10 to 1 alcohol and tobacco. So I think you have to sort of try and make that case. But listen, if you're a legislator who gets voted in every two years and you have some pet projects that you want to do, who cares what's going to happen in 10 years with the social costs? Right now, your local county needs a new whatever. And if you can pay for it with the money this year that you get, you're going to be the hero versus saying, you know, in 10 years, if we have this estimated increase in use that other people have called about, we're going to lose money. Money. That's a different, more for a political case. It's not even just the, t- the time right. lag. It's sure. also that it's different parts of, it's different sectors that are going to be paying. Absolutely. Yeah. Right, exactly. Absolutely. Thank you. Lady here. Kevin, this, this question is again for you. You showed a slide that said Colorado is now the number one youth state users and that there's rampant advertising and commercialization and there's that thriving underground market of white, gray, and black. But it's not, aren't those figures really the case even before the legislation? Didn't we have a high use rate in Colorado prior to that? Didn't we have, we have advertising, I think. It might be underground advertising, but it gets to the users who are interested in that advertising, right? So there's a tremendous amount on social media, websites, and I think there's a thriving underground market no matter what. Yeah. So let's be clear. Uh, Colorado, my understanding is the first time that they are number one in the country, 12 to 17 past month use, which is the marker that we use. That's according to SAMHSA's state estimates that they released in December. They've already always been high. I mean, they've always been in the top, I don't always, but they've been in the top 10 for a while. They're now number one. So that was, that was what I was saying on, on the slide. Of course, they're under prohibition. The whole point is that there's a thriving underground market. Absolutely. My, my point was saying is that now we have the underground market. We have the legal market, which wasn't the case before legal. That's the whole point of it by definition. And then we also now, as a result of the legal market, have the gray market. So we have the, I'm the older brother that's going to buy the candies legally and then sell them or bring them across to Nebraska or whatever. Um, that, so, so so that's what I was saying. And of course, I mean, yeah, I guess you sort of have advertising the sort of your friend who, because most people get, of course, their cannabis from, not from a shady, you know, dealer on the corner and the underground market is from an older sibling or a friend or whatever, um, someone usually that they know. Um, yeah, of course, there's sort of, if you call this advertising, me telling you that this joint is really good and you should try it, yes, but there isn't, you know, Walmart of weed, weed Mart, you know, advertising on, you know, the, the, the freeway or free dab. And I didn't bring, I, I didn't bring the pictures because this wasn't really later today is the discussion on legalization. But no, before legalization, you didn't have free dab uh, advertising on the freeway. You didn't have the the candies and the cookies and all the things and the sodas being marketed. You didn't have the Sesame Street characters that they're using. You didn't have the degradation of women that they're having in multiple different coupons focused on 18-year-old men to buy you know, on the medical side. So no, I, I would argue you absolutely didn't have that before legalization other than the medical market. And now you have that. And that's the... I see it in Craigslist a lot, even in the places where it's not legal, right? And in that back yeah, page. Right, right, yeah. Okay, a lot of hands going up now, but it's first come, first serve. So gentleman there, and then the gentleman here. This question is to no one in particular, but um, touching on the medical cannabis re- regimes that we see in so many different states, how does that help or complicate the decriminalization efforts that y'all are discussing? No, that's a great, uh, 
a great question. I mean, as most of you know, I mean, I think now there are, what is it, 20, well, Pennsylvania hasn't passed yet, but uh, what, 23 states plus the, the District of Columbia make allowances uh, for, uh, for the flour, and then they're, you know, as John showed earlier, I think they're now up to 17 states that allow, uh, uh, or that they're allowing the CBD oils. Whether or not you can actually get the CBD oils there is a whole other story. In the, uh, but, uh, but there's a, such a wide variation in terms of the different policies, you know, especially outside of the United States, California gets all the attention. It's so easy to get a card. Mm-hmm. The dispensaries are all over the place. It's very different in New York. It's, you know, very different in Vermont. And so I think the extent to which decriminalization would make a difference in terms of the criminal justice uh, um, kind of expenditures and burdens is going to depend on the states. Like, uh, like, you know, California, I mean, everyone used to, it used to always be defined as a decriminalization state. You know, everyone thought they did it in the early 70s, but it still could possibly be a criminal offense. So it really wasn't until January of 2011 that it really became decriminalized. And there, I mean, you did see kind of a reduction in arrests. Uh, but in terms of the total criminal justice burden, I mean, there are a lot of people that already have heavy users that already have protections because they already had a card. So, but you, so you can imagine in a place like New York, well, New York is already decriminalized, but a place that had a, a, a much smaller and more restricted medical market, I think decriminalization could make, much, you know, could make a bigger difference there. Like, and that's what happened in Vermont. Vermont already had kind of a small, uh, you know, small medical system in place. But then, yeah, from, year, you know, from the year before, year after, it went from 1,600 criminal offenses to 300. And so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the um, medical um, – th- th- what happened in New York State is uh, the medical society and organizations. We – and I was part of this thing. Rather than opposing medical marijuana, we said medical marijuana needed to be approved by the FDA. It needs to be controlled, you see. And, and we sort of won over the governor. And so it is uh, – you know, it's a very different picture. And, and the physicians and the total the side effects and the advertising is, is very severely limited – and a lot of the people say, well, this is the worst medical marijuana bill in the country. And I sort of thought, wonderful, because uh, I was a little bit compromising by even saying, well, maybe that's okay. Place him. But, uh, so I think that um, – and so we have a different picture. Now, that may be overridden. People are very angry at certain people when they want to change the law uh, and, and go back. But, so it's, it's very controlled, and it's, you have to have scientific evidence for advertisement. There's a lot of stuff. So much more medical. It's not FDA approved. So the governor originally wanted to do research projects, first introduce research, but then the federal government gave – we won't go into that. <laughs> um, just to add to that, I think uh, the question again is about uh, interaction between legalization and decriminalization. I have these, yeah. Uh, and um, it comes back to this question of objectives. You know, what objectives do you want to achieve with your reform? And can you achieve the objectives, or are you likely to more likely uh, to more achieve those objectives through different measures of uh, different types of reform? So the question comes back to: Is there a chance of uh, uh, achieving certain objectives through uh, more moderate reforms, or can you only achieve those objectives by making bigger changes? That's the policy thought process. Um, I have four on the list now, gentlemen here, and uh, yeah, please wait for the microphone to come. So the DEA is apparently considering rescheduling marijuana. This is a question for all the panelists. Um, if the DEA says, all right, it's a Schedule 2, 3, or 4 drug, uh, and we're going to enforce the law, what does that do to state recreational and state medical marijuana programs? Do you mind if I start? So I think there's a huge amount of confusion about what rescheduling is. It is like it is really a sort of arcane congressional term, legalistic that has turned into a rallying cry for activists and some who think that they're speaking on behalf of researchers. Um, cocaine is a Schedule Two drug. You can't buy 
use or do anything with cocaine outside this extremely narrow uh, research protocol, which it's very, very, very narrow. Cocaine, obviously, penalties. This is I'm just this is the best analogy I can think of. Cocaine penalties are much harsher than marijuana penalties on the federal or state level. But cocaine is Schedule Two and marijuana is Schedule One. So people think, well, how is that the case? Well, it's because scheduling has nothing to do with penalties, and um, in terms of availability, actually, very little to do uh, with with that. Uh, we have parts of the opiate plant that are Schedule Two. You can't get them at a pharmacy because there's no of, of these parts that I'm talking about because you don't have a specific medication that has also been approved by the FDA. So I just want to say at the outset, it's it's amazing to sort of observe this thing. The other thing is I am, you know, I don't have special knowledge on this, but I, I, I would bet the house that um, DEA is not rescheduling marijuana this year or anytime soon because the issue is DEA has to consider rescheduling when a somebody says, DEA, I want you to reconsider it. That can happen multiple times a year. There was one news story written in the Huffington Post a few weeks ago, and I'm glad there's going to be a journalist panel later, saying a true headline, DEA is, re- is considering rescheduling. Yeah, they've considered rescheduling every year for the last 20. It's nothing new unless we knew of new studies that said that there was a specific product that – whole plant, whole flower marijuana in 2015, since the last time they made a determination, which was 2011, unless there's all those things have emerged, there's absolutely no reason to think that they're actually going to say, let's reschedule. Now, if they did, and that was your question, I'm certain they will not. They will not reschedule marijuana. If they did, it was schedule two or, or whatnot, you still couldn't prescribe it and you still couldn't use it. It would make no difference because there's no specific medication that is approved by the FDA. Now, descheduled, which is now what Representative Blumenauer and the Drug Policy Alliance and Marijuana Policy Project, that's much more honest, I think, on their side, because descheduled certainly would make it like alcohol and tobacco. Rescheduling to two or three is not where the ball is at all. Yeah, go ahead. For Nida here. Um, just to, just to say that the only thing that would be helped if it were rescheduled to schedule two would be research because there are some additional um, there are some additional hurdles and burdens that go along with schedule one for doing research but everything else uh, I- of course it wouldn't make it easy to do research no. I mean it's still very it's difficult not- schedule two so I, I have actually argued that there are many other now that I'm not in government, I can do this. Many, I can argue about this. many other things other than rescheduling. If you care about research, that you should focus on. If you really want to do research on marijuana, that focusing on let's reschedule to two is missing the debate because there are so many things within two that are actually problematic. Even. Oh, Norm, anything on this schedule? Yeah, yeah. Just, I mean, this, the idea of the uh, the federal-state conflict is fascinating, and we hear about how because of this issue, there, we run into problems with banking. It's harder for the states to do testing. Um, but what doesn't get discussed is the potential for opportunities, right? To the extent that you have states that are now, you know, allowing advertising, and so to the extent this is still all legal, illegal under federal law. Right. The federal government could actually use its prosecutorial discretion to shape these markets to say, you know what, you're not selling. You know, if you're selling gummy candies or some or any products that have THC over forty percent or some threshold, you're going to go to the top of our list. You know, there's a lot of things that Cole Memo could have said that it didn't. And but the thing to keep in mind is, in January of 2017, we're going to have a new president. Mm-hmm. It's unclear whether or not that individual is going to continue down this path of the Obama administration or try something else. So we earlier we were talking about how <laughs> inevitable or whether or not it would be inevitable to have legalization. I do think in the short run, while we have this federal-state conflict, there may be things that we could do to help improve public health. 
Okay, I have uh, four questioners waiting. That's a fifth. Uh, so I'm going to take those, and that probably will take us through to the end of the session. What I'm going to take is the first three of those questioners before we ask for responses uh, so we can get uh, other questions put to the full panel. So we have Alex, yourself, and Angela. And you have you two at the back. This is a question for Bo. Um, if it is the case, which I hope it is, that we all agree that it, the, in the principle that it should not be a criminal offence to possess small amounts of marijuana for your own use, even if we don't like the term decriminalisation. If that's the principle, surely the simplest way of doing that is just to legalise possession. And you talked about there being downsides to this, about the messaging it might send. But given, as we know from Kevin, that most people have no idea what the legal status of a drug is in their country, and they don't understand the difference between legalisation and decriminalisation. Yeah. So can you tell us more about what the mechanism would be by which legalising rather than decriminalising possession would be expected to have a greater impact on use? No, I would just, I would just throw in a... I don't think so about that. Oh, uh, uh, question. And that, that, that question, I think, needs a bit of thinking about. Uh, a couple of more questions. Uh, lady in red in the front. My name's Jody, and I'm really glad that you started with definitions. In Florida, I tell people that cannabis is legal. It's legal like dynamite as opposed to legal like spinach. Um, I wanted to ask you about net widening. When I was in Colorado talking to folks in Denver with the Office of Marijuana Policy, they said that prior to the point where we started kind of mucking around, we being marijuana policy advocates like myself, that there were not a whole lot of arrests for uh, cannabis use. But after we started mucking with the laws, that we then, they had laws that had to be enforced. So I was wondering if you had calculated into the net widening the idea that prior to some of these policy changes, officers might have been using a little discretion, they find someone with a little bit of marijuana, and they dumped it instead of fining. And lastly, I just wanted to say in terms of cookies and candies, I'm going to remind you all of chocolate milk of magnesia and Mary Poppins, who said a spoonful of sugar made the medicine go down. We do apologize. Um, so, uh, Angela, and after this batch of questions, I'll go to the panel. Just a comment on the question. A comment actually came after your uh, comment, Mike, uh, on this uh, country uh, outside the U.S. Uh, that has a different uh, thing. And indeed, uh, and uh, I want to think whether the U.S. Uh, actually now is the extreme on this side, uh, but probably has started on the extreme of this side uh, on enforcing prohibition on cannabis in a way that many, many other countries in the world uh, do not do. So I think it's really the two, I mean, typically of the U.S., if I may, uh, you know, having the, the extremes uh, and and, uh, but uh, if I may, so in general, if I can put the impact of, uh, okay, you call it, I think, uh, Mike, you mentioned it, you know, the definition of depenalization, decriminalization. I mean, depenalization per se is uh, allowed by the convention. And uh, I think uh, I know that probably many of you are not very happy of the outcome of UNGAS document, but actually the, the mentioning of de facto depenalizing uh, and is not only possession, you know, is minor offenses. So even goes beyond possession can have an impact uh, that is much greater, maybe not in the U.S. where you have that big problem with cannabis, but outside the U.S., uh, the impact on this, uh, on other drugs, uh, uh, is probably much uh, you know, bigger than what uh, it would be concerning the cannabis. So my question is, uh, how much the, 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 the debate uh, on whether depenalization or decriminalization of possession goes beyond cannabis in the U.S.? 
Okay, so three questions there. I'd ask the panel to uh, comment and observation. Take into account we have five minutes left and two more questioners. So brief comments at this stage. Very briefly. So, no, you're right. And so that's the whole idea behind that winding is whereas before the cops may have just kind of confiscated the cannabis and thrown it away, now they may be more likely to apply a ticket. And so and that's something we really have to pay attention uh, uh, to uh, with respect to youth and kind of what happens here. So it'll be fascinating to kind of see how this plays out in uh, – in Washington, Colorado, and the other places. And Alex, what I was just trying to think about, some possible downsides to this, and uh, I don't have any evidence to back this up. One possibility, though, is to the extent that even within the United States, if you were to look at all of the different laws kind of for possession, and uh, you, you wouldn't, it would be hard for you to pick out what are typically the decriminalization states. So the idea potentially is if one state just decides to legalize possession now and it gets confused with just general legalization, then maybe that could send some signals. I have no idea about whether or not that would actually be the case. But I could see it potentially being different than kind of how we have decriminalization now. Um, as I said, I'm not necessarily advocating for that. I just think it's something to think about here. And, it's, and to the extent that you could do something like that with a sunset clause, it would be, wouldn't be as much of a risk. Um, well, I, I, I'm not sure. I, I think that um, this whole thing is um, the health, the health standpoint, which we heard less, the, the addiction and all of that, and that's that's the, no one, the elephant in the room that people don't want to talk about, and the cost for that and all of that. I think it's the problem with the decriminalization. I mean, the legalization has to do with the advertising, but now we have advertising anyway, and I think that uh, you know, if there was a way we could outlaw advertising and promotion. That would be wonderful. We could do a lot of things, but we and that, and I you, know, you can see as a doctor, we just see these problems with with, with the opi- that's part of the opioid problem, uh, <laughs> oxycotton and so on and uh, and and uh, whatever it is. So we see advertising promotion, and then on the other hand, where the emergency rooms are filled with people and lives falling apart and families. So from our standpoint, you know, we call in the policy people. What can you do? And if you if you're going to you know decriminalize it or legalize it, whatever. Let's do something to decrease the health risks. And when we heard downstairs, I'm, he was, I really appreciated the health risks are going to get worse and the number of people affected and the kinds of people that are going to be affected. Just very quickly on what Angela said. I, I think you're right about the extremes from one side or the other. And actually, you know, in this discussion of the opiate and heroin epidemic, there have been, you know, people, governors and others calling for, you know, bring the death penalty back, bring the, you know. And so this is, this is, I think, a worry of American public policy generally about sort of, sort of quick reactions to something and trying, I think so the, the, so actually that's why I, maybe I'm in the minority in this room. I find the active document very helpful because I think it actually helps to chart out what would more of a, for lack of a better term, middle ground look like that is in UN term speak, not really US speak, but principle of proportionality, um, where we would want to make sure that we're not going overboard. Um, But also, I think we also would want to understand that this is a much more nuanced issue. So, you know, if somebody, you know, is just a possession of of a small amount of any drug, how is that different from somebody who's a possession of small amount, and that is fueling crime and other things? And how does a one policy, whether it's treatment only, or legalization only, or throw them in prison, and only apply to a, such a complex biobehavioral issue as this is the trick. Okay, thanks. And we have two more questions. I'm determined to get this in. Uh, so we have Steve at the back and the gentleman there. Uh, please place your questions as quickly as you can. Uh, apologies for I missed the beginning of the session, but uh, one of the things that you mentioned, Kevin, was about the you meant you touched on cannabis social clubs in your spectrum, and I, I think it's quite interesting that you have uh, the cannabis social clubs 
are a model that nominally, at least, operates within a decriminalisation framework, although obviously it's operating in a kind of uh, legal grey area and it's not, it's not officially endorsed by the Spanish government, uh, but it also hasn't been condemned as sitting outside the UN treaties by, by the INCB. Um, and and it's, it's a sort of de facto legal supply uh, club model for small groups of people that seems to when it, it operate quite well in that it's a non-profit system. Some, a lot of the sort of commercial in, imperatives that people have been worried about that we talked about this morning aren't present. And so what you've got there, I think, is an interesting uh, way in which within a decriminalization framework, you can, you, you're seeing a sort of transitional model towards legalization that may be actually quite a, a, a positive uh, framework for how we should be thinking about legalization and regulation in terms of uh, n- non-commercial regulation. I just wondered if anyone was interested in commenting on that as an aspect of the decriminalization discussion. Okay, panel to, uh, to the panel in a second, but first you, sir. Uh, thank you. This question is to Bo. You talked about some of the um, decriminalization movements creating some tension between the police and the community. I wondered if you could just talk about that a little, because I could see two different trends, perhaps. One is that the police very much opposed the nationwide movement to have concealed carry laws uh, because they were concerned about violence and the like, but they seem to have come to accept that. I'm wondering if the same sort of result will happen with marijuana legalization. On the other hand, I know there are police officers who use marijuana uh, presence as a basis for making an arrest, not because they want to enforce that law, but because they want to use this person as a source. They now have something over this person, and so they can use this person to find out about what's going on in the neighborhood and the like. And if you if you decriminalize it or completely legalize it, the police who used to do that now won't be able to do that, and so they'll be unhappy. So it, it, things can go in either direction in that regard. Okay, thanks for those two questions. Uh, observations from the panel on that. Response. Just quickly before the, uh, the panelists start, it is now past 1 p.m. Uh, you have an hour until the next session begins to get lunch. I just wanted to let all of you know so you wouldn't feel rushed. I was ta- Steve, I was talking about this within the context of Washington, D.C., obviously, where they're going. And I think, yeah, and I think, oh, well, so uh, in terms of the INCB, I mean, I hope Wayne Hall is not in here. I mean, there's probably three people in Washington, D.C. who know who the INCB is, first of all. I, but, but, but more to the point, um, I think when you talk about, again, American style, we talk about American style legalization versus Dutch style. It's like some of us are longing for the Dutch style, um, which we never thought we would say. And that's because it is in such sharp contrast with Americans. So what happens that I, you know, if it goes forward in Washington, D.C., I would be very surprised if it follows the sort of slow and steady, calm and quiet social club model that we've seen in Spain and, and maybe one or two other countries versus a much more leaning commercial model, um, even if it is sort of a social club model. So that speaks to needing to, I think, set the context of where you're talking about. And so I think that would lean much more towards sort of the full legal model than the other. Um, Paul, to your last point, this argument that by arresting people for possession, it could provide intelligence to that would be useful to the police. I hear this argument. I've seen no empirical evidence for it. I'm not saying that it doesn't happen, but that's why. Why not give it? If you're going to, you know, really try to address this, you know, if you were to legalize possession with the sunset clause, try it for a couple of years. If it turns out that the police really don't like this because they're losing all this information, that then you could take that to help make decisions about what to do next. And so, I do think that might be a possibility. But I just haven't seen any evidence for that. And Steve, you know, with respect to the cannabis clubs, we're trying to keep this mostly mostly focused on just possession. But I think you're right when we're talking about these middle ground options. You know, in the United States, so much of the focus is on either prohibition or the for-profit legal regime. But once you go outside of the United States, people are much more likely to talk about some of these other options that may be more ideal from a public. Well, folks, that's all the time we got for today for this recorded edition of the Russ Belleville Show from the Cam-
Cannabis Science and Policy Summit in New York City. We'll bring you more highlights from the summit, and we've got the upcoming United Nations session that we'll bring you highlights for as well. That's it for today. I'm Radical Russ for everyone here at Canvas Radio. Until next time, take care of each other, tokers. This is the Russ Belleville Show. The Russ Belleville Show is blogging and podcasting daily at RadicalRuss.com. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you dry it, you roll it, you smoke it. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you dry it, you roll it, you smoke it, and it goes down to Promoting the end of adult cannabis prohibition is easy because we have facts, science, reason, compassion, evidence, truth, and logic on our side. It's even easier when researchers catalog it all for us. Learn how to gather the facts on marijuana use, arrests, seizures, rehabs, drug tests, and more on this edition of Drug War Data Mine. Welcome back, everyone. We're here at the Oregon uh, Cannabis Caucus, sponsored by the National Cannabis Industry Association. They're going to be doing these quarterly. And we're here with uh, Sam Chapman, a consultant in the industry. Again, what's your consulting group? New Economy Consulting. New Economy, that's right. New Economy Consulting. And didn't you guys just recently come out with some report on the state of the business here? We did, yeah. We just released the Oregon Cannabis Industry Jobs Report, which shows that we have created thus far 2,156 jobs just in the retail sector. And uh, we decided just to focus on the retail sector because that was the most attainable numbers. We ex- we uh, were excited to expand our research into production, wholesale, processing, and ancillary. And we really think that the more that we start to look into how these jobs are being created and how many there are, we can start changing the conversation a little bit with maybe more conservative counties or city councils that are, are may have a stigma around cannabis and start talking about jobs. Yeah and cannabis together, not just cannabis, but as a job creator, because as we all know, there's an election coming up, and hardly anyone gets reelected without talking about jobs. So over 2,000 jobs, and these are just retail, touching the plant jobs. That's correct, yes, yes, and we uh, we expect this number to uh, continue to rise over the next year or two. Uh, it, may, it may flatline at year three, but with... Uh, you know, the expansion of adult sales over the next coming months, new licenses coming online, you know, there's it's only up from here. That's fantastic. Have you seen any indication from any of these rural counties in what I like to call West Idaho uh, yeah. turning turning around and starting to realize, hey, we're running out of money. We could use these jobs. You know, absolutely. Um, Cannon Beach was one of them. I don't think it was specifically on jobs, but people are really starting to realize that, um, you know, people voted for Measure 91, quite a few of them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, even in places like Lake Oswego, where 50, you know, we reverse engineer the county precinct numbers to figure out how the cities voted. And so 56% of Lake Oswego voters voted yes on Measure 91. And they're going to be putting it on the ballot. And so those are some cities that we think that the people are going to reaffirm their decision to be able to buy cannabis in their hometown. We couldn't be more excited about it. There was another really interesting report, Oregon Economic Council or whatever they're Mm -hmm. called, Mm -hmm. uh, reporting on the cross-border effect between Washington State and Oregon, kind of this competition between tax rates and availability and, right. and so forth. Uh, give me your take on that and looking to the future with California in 2016, will Oregon suffer the same effect? Right, it's a great question. So there's a couple of factors there, I think. The first one is that um, cannabis is an elastic product, which means that when price goes up, demand goes down and vice versa. And I think that's a really important 
fact to keep in mind, especially if you're a city council that's thinking about adding some exorbitant tax. And in some areas, 3% may be even exorbitant for some people. Maybe they're more rural, they can't, you know, whatever the reason. And so what we're trying to do with the jobs numbers in the report is show that, yes, tax revenue is good, but let's not forget about the underbelly of this industry that's putting food on the table and keeping the lights on and working families' homes. And that's what jobs do more than anything. And so we're really trying to change the conversation, not so much about taxes, but more about jobs because it's a tangible benefit that the working people of Oregon can take advantage of. And continues to grow. And again, we're going to have more jobs in the ancillary markets, these ancillary jobs that that supply this industry. Uh, But let's do talk a little bit about the tax revenues. I mean, do you have any uh, number figures for how well Oregon's done? Well, I mean, uh, I think it was uh, just a couple months ago they published numbers of uh, $3.4 million in tax revenue. So, um, you know, it's it's still early again. And, um, you know, as soon as the OHA decides to kind of get their act together and allow early sales of extracts and edibles, I really think that the new market, the new cannabis market will show up which is soccer moms and grandparents who want to buy products that don't exist right now or they don't have access to that, you know, some of them will do it for recreational purposes. Other will do it for medicinal. They don't even know it, right? When grandma finds out that she can buy a topical for her arthritis that's not going to get her high, that's going to be a game changer. I agree. Now, uh, looking forward, you know, with all of the changes we've seen in these past couple of sessions, we've got medical marijuana shops that are eventually going to be able to sell to all customers. Right. We've got recreational shops that will be able to sell to patients tax-free. Does this portend a merging of the two markets? You know, I think it does. And this is obviously a very sensitive topic for a lot of people. You know, there's a lot of people, rightfully so, worried about a lot of the medical provisions that they have today going away or being treated unfairly or being forced into a regulatory environment in which you know, they may not be able to survive. And I think that there's a lot of things that we need to take into consideration there when we're making these changes in the legislature at the local level. Um, But more than anything, I really think that the legalization of cannabis has done more for the medical market than anything. And that there are, sure, there are 70, maybe 80,000 patients in Oregon registered now. I would be willing to bet that there are twice as many people who would love to be able to use medicinal cannabis for medicinal reasons that have never been part of that program that are going to benefit and feel comfortable now saying, okay, I don't have to be part of a program and I can use this medicinally on my own terms without having to sign up for something and wait, you know, three months for a car. And pay hundreds to a doctor and another couple hundred to the state. That's right. Sam Chapman from New Economy Consulting. If people are interested in these jobs reports, these white papers you guys are putting out, how can they get a hold of them? Absolutely. The website is pretty simple. www.cannabisjobsreport.com. You can download it for free. Share with your friends. Sam Chapman, thank you so much and uh, have yourself a great event. Hey, thanks for having me. You bet. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com.